0: Thank you very much, ladies, for that beautiful song. It fits in very well with the message that I'm preaching from Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Bow the knee. One day, every knee, every knee of any person has ever been born in this world will bow before the Lord. I am so glad you and I as believers in Christ bow our knee now. We acknowledge Him as our King. We give Him the glory as the eternal sovereign of the universe. I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to be uh, continuing our series of messages that describe various biblical characters that had a close encounter with God and were gloriously transformed by that encounter. Today, we're going to view the amazing experience of Isaiah's close encounter in chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting On a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Father, we bow in your presence this morning and pray. O God, as we approach the holy ground of Isaiah chapter 6, that, God, you would give us eyes to see and a heart to understand what you're trying to speak to us about. I pray that, God, you would help me as I deliver this message. Oh, God, do it justice. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah had a vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was mostly a good king. In his reign, it seemed like Israel reached the pinnacle of success, the the nation of Judah. In his reign, he built massive cisterns in the desert and expanded the agriculture of the land. He expanded the military almost to the extent that King David had it in his reign. Uh, Uzziah reigned 52 years, and it was a prosperous, uh, successful land of Judah. It marks the call of Isaiah around 740 B.C., the king of the nation is dead, and God is speaking, but even though the king is dead, the king of heaven is still alive. This is when God calls Isaiah as a prophet with a difficult message. Things have been going well. The nation has been prosperous, expanded. Because the nation has begun to turn its back on God, now Isaiah has a message of woe, a message that judgment is coming to the land. For young Isaiah the prophet, the outlook was bleak. His beloved king had died, his nation was in peril, and he could do little about it. The outlook may have been bleak, but the uplook was glorious. God was still on the throne, and he was reigning as the sovereign of the universe. Before Isaiah began his ministry, he needs something. He needs to have what God gave him, a vision of God. Now, we don't know where Isaiah was when he had this vision, but the vision is of the temple in heaven. It was the heavenly temple. He might have been at the earthly temple that Solomon built, standing outside, and then God gave him this vision. The first thing we notice about this vision is a vision of God that God is seated on His throne. In verse 6, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's seated on the throne. It speaks of his majesty, his authority, his ruling. We have a lot of earthly thrones today, don't we? Various countries have their leaders, their kings, their prime ministers, their presidents, or their dictators. But you notice something about these seats, these thrones where they're sitting, whether it's an oval office or whatever. They all have a rotating door, don't they? They all will give up their seat sooner or later. They might be voted out of office. They might die. It could be that they get assassinated or a country goes through a coup. coup. We're going to have a presidential election this November 3rd, and who knows? uh, We might have a new president or be able to... uh, Retain the old one for at least four more years, but that is a rotating seat. No one sits on that oval office, that throne, very long. Even people like Putin and Kim Jong-un, one day they're going to be replaced, but God will never be replaced. He will never give up His throne. He is still seated there. He's still the majesty. He's still the ruler sovereignly over this universe. And notice something else about His reign here. His train filled the temple. Now this is not the kind of train that runs on railroad tracks. Oh, so This is a different train. Think of a king clothed in his royal robes and the robes trail behind him. This is the picture that we get of God, the train which speaks of His glory, that speaks of His majesty fills the whole temple of God. This is the vision that Isaiah says, showing the absolute uh, completeness of God's sovereignty. He is, his train fills the temple as he is high and lifted up. In verse 3, it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. In the Old Testament, remember the tabernacle and you remember the temple. There was a piece of furniture that was in the Holy of Holies. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant also had a lid, and that lid was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, there were two angels. They were cherubim. And the cherubim's wings overspread the mercy seat. And the blood was sprinkled on that mercy seat once a year. And the Bible says that God's Shekinah glory, the brilliance of His presence, dwelt between those two wings of the cherubim during that time." You know what Isaiah is saying? God's not limited to that mercy seat. His presence, His glory fills the whole earth. God's glory can be seen everywhere. We see His glory everywhere we look. We. Look at the majesty of the mountains and it's reflecting the glory of God. We see His glory in the oceans, the woods, and the prairies, from the tiniest creature to the vast expanse of the stars and the galaxies. The majesty of God is there. The glory of God is there. Next, we're going to see He is surrounded by the seraphim. (coughs) The word seraph, that's Singular seraphim is plural, which means more than one, and we don't know how many of these seraphs there were, but there were. Uh, the word seraph means burning one, and I see them as a category of angels. Now we've just mentioned about the cherubim, uh, that's one category of angels. We also hear of archangels, and the seraphim I believe is another category of angel, and it seems like their job. Their main role is to protect the holiness of God, is to reflect the holiness of God. And they are surrounding the presence of God in heaven, and that's their job. Everywhere the nation's president goes, he is surrounded with some, I don't call them seraphim. I call them guys in black suits with an earpiece in their ear. You know who those are, don't you? Secret service. And they are assigned... To protect. They'll take a bullet for the literally, they take a bullet for the president. That's their job to surround him. Well, God is surrounded by his secret service, the seraphim, and they reflect and they magnify his glory. It says that they have six wings. <clears throat> That's where we get angels having wings. They have six wings. Two of them, you know what they use two of them for? They cover their face. That's not because they're ugly. <laughs> they cover their face because they're in the presence of God and they and it speaks of humility. With two wings, they cover their feet. Why are they covering their feet? Well, remember when we preached on Moses, when M- Moses came to the burning bush, he, the voice out of the bush says, take off your shoes for the place you're standing on is holy ground. Even The holy angels of God, in the presence of God, cover their feet, acknowledging His holiness. And two of the wings they use to fly. This speaks of their eagerness to serve the king of kings at anything he wants. So he's surrounded by the seraphim. Also, notice here the shouts of holy, holy, holy. It says in verse 3, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, we don't know how many of these seraphs there were. The Bible doesn't say how many. Their number is not given. But they were proclaiming that the Lord Almighty is holy. Now, the threefold repetition of the word holy doesn't mean that He's uh, referring to holy to the Father, holy to the Son, holy is the Holy Spirit, It doesn't refer to that, but the use of the word holy is an emphasis in Scripture. To say it one time is important, twice is is even more important, but when you say three times, it's a completion of His holiness. Repeating a word three times for emphasis is common in Scripture. In Revelation 8, 13, when God was about to unleash judgment on the earth, He says, woe, woe, woe emphasizing the intensity of that word. The holiness of God here is mentioned three times. You notice this is one of the attributes of God, but He has other attributes. He is love, He is wrath, His mercy, His grace, His judgment, His long-suffering. But nowhere do you hear that God is love, 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 or wrath, 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 or mercy, 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 only with this word, holy, holy, holy. I I think that that gives us the idea. That is his overriding. That is his primary attribute. When we think of God, we need to think of him high and lifted up on the throne. He is thrice holy. Something else happens here. After the shouts of holy, 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 we see the shaking of the doorpost in verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. God shook the house, indicating his power. You know, I love to get out in nature, and I love to hear the sounds of nature, I even love to sit in my house when there's one of these Florida thunderstorms that move in and hear the light see the lightning and hear that thunder and it begins to shake the windows. I love that. I know my dog doesn't love it, and, and I may some of you might might uh, be scared of that, but I love to hear it because it, it reminds me of the power of God to shake things up. You know, it reminds me of of other things that we see out in the world, like a the rushing waterfall or the ocean waves. It reminds me of the power of God. I think one of the things that the church of Jesus Christ needs today is a shaking because we are met face to face with the holiness and power of Almighty God. Let me ask you this question. Has there been ever a time in your life when God shook you up? When God shook you up? You might have been shaken by other things. I remember a few years ago, I was driving my uh, Hyundai Elantra up in Port Charlotte, and I couldn't see the the traffic coming, and I said, I I can make it. So I zoomed across Harbor Boulevard, and boom, I was hit right in the side, T-boned by another car, and I tell you, that shook me up. I was just wobbling around, and I know I should have gone to the doctor, but, you know, it's a guy thing, you know, you're fine, you tough it out, but I think I broke something, but anyway, that shook me up. Let me ask you, has God ever shook you up? Has ever rocked your world? Maybe you got a diagnosis from the doctor and it included the C word. Maybe it was a heart problem. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was a trouble with one of your children, a a physical or loss of a spouse, and, and God got your attention and you really needed Him. Well, God shook the house here, and I hope that He's shaking you up to show you how much you need God. I'm thinking that this COVID-19, God is probably trying to shake up our country and realize it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much you've got invested and how good things are. It can go boom, just like that. And I hope that some people will be shaken awake to their need of God because of that. Isaiah, the temple, the house, the doorpost shook. Now let's see Isaiah's reaction to his encounter with God. The posts of the door weren't the only thing shaking. The prophet Isaiah was shaking as well. Notice his encounter with God. The first thing it gave him a clear view of God's otherness. God was portrayed and pictured here in this chapter as high and lifted up. The whole earth was full of his glory. We call this the transcendence of God. He is in a class by himself. He is completely other than us. He is above us. You know, I know that we, we thank the Lord for his nearness, his walking with us. But we cannot eliminate the otherness of God, his highness, his holiness, his transcendence. So Isaiah had a clear view of God lifted up. He also had a feeling of utter worthlessness. Notice what he says in verse 5, woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is me. We don't use that word very much, do we? <laughs> woe. Maybe, uh, maybe you had a, a teacher in your school that said, woe is you, or something like that. Maybe, maybe uh, you say to one of your little ones that are, are getting out and getting into trouble and says, woe, come upon thee, young son, we just don't use that word very often, woe. Um, Jesus pronounced woe upon the scribes and the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. But you know, Isaiah, he is saying, woe is me, for I am undone. He's pronouncing woe upon himself. And this is a great description of what Isaiah was feeling when he had a vision of God Almighty He says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm coming apart at the seams, I'm becoming unraveled. It's a feeling of personal disintegration. You know, oftentimes we as believers and church members here in in, uh, our society, we think we got it all together. You know, we think that we're pretty good Christians. You know, we're coming to church most Sundays and we're reading the Bible and we give and pray once in a while, and give our offerings, and serve the Lord, and we think that we have it all together, but I want to tell you, when we get a vision of who God is, His holiness, His majesty, and His glory, and His power, we should feel like Isaiah as being undone, just coming apart at the scenes. No no matter what we think that we've got together, we, compared to God, are undone. Woe is me. Something else that Isaiah felt, a realization of his own sinfulness. After he says, woe is me, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, I've got a dirty mouth, God. Now, why didn't it say, I'm a man of unclean thoughts, or I'm a man of unclean actions? Well, I think that Jesus said that evil doesn't come by what goes into our mouths, but what comes out. When we're faced with the holiness of God, what comes out of our mouth that is sinful? You know, tearing people down and complaining and griping and using foul language and all of these lies and uh, slander that comes out of our mouth. Isaiah was probably a good man, probably one of the best in his society. But when he compared himself to God, he realized he was a sinful man. Something that I noticed also, after he realized his own sinfulness, he had an understanding of the wickedness around him. And he said, and I dwell, verse 5, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You know, I think he got his priorities straight. He first saw his own sinfulness, and then he saw the wickedness around him. Boy, you know, one of the favorite things that Christians love to do, we love to take our finger, man, I tell you, that government is going to a hell in a handbasket. My, look at the sinful people, look at Hollywood, look at all of these uh, things that in our country that is, and we love to preach on that. And I think that there is a point where we need to see that, but you know what, Isaiah, the first thing that he did, he looked inside his own self and he had to get his own heart right before he could see out. And I think that what Isaiah, what the scripture says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their own wicked ways, we have no control over society. Society is going to do what it's going to do. The last last several thousand years of humanity, there's been up and there's been down, and there's all kinds of countries that have gone prosperous and that have gone downhill. We need to look at us. Revival's got to start with the people of God, and Isaiah saw himself, and then he could see clearly that what needs to be done out there, self-first society later. Well, Isaiah had that uh, encounter with God. And finally, let's look at the transformation that Isaiah experienced as he saw God in verses 6 through 9. The first thing that he, he experienced in this transformation, experienced the cleansing of his lips. Then one of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he touched my lips with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Isaiah was prostrate, laying on the ground. He was undone. He was consumed with his own sin, totally wasted as a result of his vision of of God, helpless and hopeless. Then... God sent one of the seraphs, one of those angels, and the angel took with the tongs a live coal from off the altar, just as the earthly temple had an altar, and heavenly temple had an altar reflecting the holiness of God. And he took the tongs, and he put that live coal and touched Isaiah's lips, the most sensitive part of the body. That live coal And it cleansed him throughout. He was forgiven to the core. Grace flooded his soul after his repentance. And that second of burning flesh would result in forgiveness that would last throughout eternity. Let me ask you this question this morning. Have you been purged by the grace of God? Have you been forgiven? Has there been a time in your life when you realized your own sinfulness and you bowed before the Lord And you heard the message of the cost of salvation by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And you said, please, Lord, forgive me. And the angel touched your lips and you were cleansed completely. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior and been forgiven? That's the first thing that we see. Isaiah was cleansed by the live coal. But the second thing, he accepted the call of God after he was cleansed. In verse 8, it says, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's a message to be proclaimed. There's a message that needs to have this people here. And then Isaiah simply said, look no further, I will go from brokenness to mission. That's the pattern all of us need to take. When God breaks our heart and helps us to see who we really are and accept his forgiveness, then we say, hey, God, you've done so much for me. I'll do anything for you. Hey, you want somebody to go? I'll go. And that's what Isaiah said. But you know, there's a, there's a final thing that I want to point out here in his transformation. He not only accepted the call of God, he embraced a difficult challenge. Now, this was not going to be a a fun type of ministry that Isaiah had to do. As a matter of fact, in verse 9, it says, and he said, go and tell this people. That's fine. That's wonderful. But notice the message that he would have to say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. I'm going to be preaching to people who are not going to understand. They're not going to receive this message. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, how long, Lord? How how long am I going to have to preach this message that people aren't, aren't going to accept? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, The houses are without a man, and the Lord's land is utterly desolate, until the Babylonian invasion comes and judgment comes upon the land." Your job is to preach to people who won't believe you. Preach to people because I need to give them the message even though I know that they will not and I know that I will have to send judgment. In verse 13 it says, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak. What Isaiah's message was is a remnant ministry. He was preaching to people and only a few will hear. Only a few will believe. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't fun. It wasn't like Billy Graham going into a coliseum and thousands of people walking the aisle. That's not Isaiah's message. He was going to be preaching out to people and they said, throwing rotten tomatoes at him, hey, you're always doom and gloom, you're always saying that everything's going well, we got health and we got happiness and we'll get a new king and things will move up. They were all about prosperity, all about their own flesh when they were turning away from God and and Isaiah was going to preach to people that will... Very few would listen. You know, I think of current situation where Americans are all about prosperity, all about getting the economy going, when they're turning their back on God. But there's a few. There's a few that will gather together and believe the Scriptures and follow the Lord no matter what. That's the kind of ministry that Isaiah had. How do you see the Almighty God? Do you see Him as some doting grandfather that gives you everything you want? Do you see him as some magic genie in the bottle? If you rub the right way and say the right word, some, some uh, blessing will come out, some uh, wish will come out. Do you see God as some good buddy that'll sit and, and uh, commiserate with you? That's not what Isaiah saw. Isaiah's vision of God saw him in majesty, saw him in glory, saw him in holiness, saw him with power shaking the whole place. And his encounter with God He saw God as transcendent. He saw God and saw his own worthlessness. And he saw his own sinfulness. And then he saw the wickedness around him. Finally, he was transformed to a man who used to have dirty lips with one who would proclaim the glories of God and serve him. Has there been a time in your life when you saw you weren't as good as you thought you were? You began to see Man, I think I'm pretty good, but compared with God and compared with what He is, I am coming apart at the seams. I tell you, there's only one cure for that, and that is the live coal of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And when it touches you, you are clean, and then you can proclaim the Lord's message there been a time in your life when you accepted Jesus Christ as your own Savior. And you say, Lord, hey, I am undone. I'm unclean. Woe is me. Forgive me of my sin. Make me your child. If you haven't done that, oh, my friend, I challenge you to bow the knee today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come in your presence today. And we thank you so much for this vision that you gave to Isaiah of your absolute holiness and your majesty and your glory and your power. I pray that Christians in this age, in the year 2020, would have that same vision of the Almighty God because he, you're still the same God and transform us from the inside out. Then we can have a message to speak to this lost world. And Father, now as we Take time to quiet our heart and gather around the Lord's table. Examine our soul and may we have time to confess our sin and to focus on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.